Well, I think most of us would agree, or at least we would say that we'd agree, with the fairly common wisdom that, in the big scheme of things, you can't buy happiness. We see cautionary tales about the suicide rate being just as high among the wealthy as it is among anybody else. Back at Christmas, we may have read the story of Ebenezer Scrooge's greed, leaving him feeling bitter and alone. And we tell ourselves that as long as we have family, friends, and the basic necessities of survival, then we would be content. Of course, the phrase money can't buy happiness is usually spoken by those who have money. A person with no roof over their head, clothes on their back, or food on their table might agree that money can't buy happiness on its own, but they also might gently remind us that it does help a little bit. Well, in Luke 12, we learn that there is one thing that money, possessions, and goods can't get us, and that's eternal life. In fact, the closely associated sins of greed and covetousness might just get us the opposite, eternal death. If we look closer, today's parable will remind us of how foolish it is to seek our security, our comfort, and our joy in anything other than God. So open up to Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, or take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us, uh, which certainly cannot be quantified in the ways that we typically like to count and quantify and measure things. Uh, Thank you for the gift that you have given us that we could never repay. No matter how much we gave, no matter how much we saved, no matter how much we sacrificed, we cannot repay what it is that you've done for us. But I pray that you would help us live lives of gratitude and live lives of worship and obedience and joy and praise, shaped by the power of your Holy Spirit and guided by your word. I pray that we would recognize you as the true treasure that you are, that everything in this world that we might compare to you ultimately falls short. It pales in comparison. It's fool's gold. So, Lord, help us treasure you for who you are in all of your fullness. And I pray that that would be evident through our actions, through our decisions, through our priorities. Lord, help us be attentive to what this parable has to tell us in terms of what truly matters in this life and in the next. Give us ears to hear what your word has to say. Help us know you better, love you more, and follow you more closely through reading these parables and reading this word this morning. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this church. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, 
Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So our story begins with a disagreement between two siblings over an inheritance. And this is yet another reminder that we are not as different from the people we read about in Scripture as we think we are. How many disputes like this still happen today? How many families are torn apart over financial disagreements? Quite a few. But Jesus refuses to get involved in the finer points of this particular case. Instead, he zooms out and warns against a broader problem. A problem not just for the man concerned about the inheritance. A problem for every single person hearing him talk. A problem for every single person who reads these words some 2,000 years later. He's talking about the sin of covetousness. That word for covetousness could also be translated as greed. It's the insatiable desire for more, especially when somebody else has more than you do. Of course, this is not the first time the Bible addresses this kind of sin. The Old Testament speaks about it regularly. The Old Testament law of Moses had specific guidelines regarding treatment of the poor, tithing to the temple, and other ways to avoid the excessive accumulation of goods to the point of driving others to poverty. Between those laws and the Tenth Commandment against coveting, there were plenty of tools available meant to restrain greed in the nation of Israel. On top of that, we have the Old Testament writings, what we often call the wisdom books. Books like Ecclesiastes, Psalms, and especially Proverbs also warn us against covetousness. One of the most memorable parts of the wisdom books with regard to this subject is in Proverbs 30, starting in verse 7. The wise man says, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That passage reminds us that having too much and not having enough can both lead us into sin. We can have so much that we forget our God, like we'll read about here in just a moment. Or if we don't have enough, we might find ourselves tempted to steal or tempted to covet. And then on top of that, we have the Old Testament prophets. These people railed against the forms of greed and the economic injustice that often followed in its wake within the kingdom of Israel. And those sins contributed to Israel's downfalls time and time and time again throughout the Old Testament. 
So it's safe to say that the sin of covetousness is persistent. Surely we can all recognize that not coveting is easy to read, easy to know, easy to talk about, but much harder to do. You could argue that Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, the sin that charted the course for all of sinful humanity to this very day, was a sin of wanting something that was not theirs, a sin of covetousness. David's sin in sleeping with Uriah's wife Bathsheba was a direct violation of the Tenth Commandment against coveting your neighbor's spouse. And how often do the scandals, crimes, and injustices of our day and age come back to some type of greed? The sin just doesn't seem to want to go away. It's a threat to all of God's people. And none of us is immune. But let's see what Jesus has to teach in the parable. Going back to Luke chapter 12, picking up in verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Call Scott Stark. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich Toward God. So who is the man of the parable? First, he's a successful farmer. Now, was his bumper crop the result of well-earned experience, fair weather, hard work, all the above? Jesus doesn't tell us. But we can assume from the parable that Up to this point, the man has not done anything wrong. There is no evidence to suggest that he achieved that success by any sordid or inappropriate or dishonest means. He simply had a great year, and there's no sin in that. In fact, his neighbors likely viewed his success as a sign of blessing from God. But then, as the story progresses, we learn that this successful farmer turns out to be a selfish hoarder. Look at all the first-person pronouns in the story. The words, I and my, leave that man's mouth some ten times in the span of three verses. Me, 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 me. The only person the man talks to is himself. He thinks nothing of others and apparently nothing of God. He is so self-absorbed 
that they don't even cross his mind. And as if that's not enough, he then embarks on a massive building project just to store all of his stuff. Why? Because he views this stuff, his success, his possessions, his grain, his goods, he views them as his life. These worldly treasures are his source of security. Relax. They're his source of comfort. Eat, drink. They're his source of joy. Be merry. But in the end, the successful farmer is exposed not only to be a selfish hoarder, but an arrogant fool. He forgets one slightly important fact. That one day he will die. He makes the same prideful mistake of those people in James 4 who have all kinds of grand ideas and big plans about how to make a name for themselves in the world, how to build a profit, but they forget that their lives are a mist. And when this man dies, which in the parable dramatically happens that very night, his wealth will be of no help. Even worse, his obsession with earthly treasures at the expense of his worship and obedience to God, those things pave his way to judgment. We say that money can't buy happiness, but we don't always live like it, do we? We can become workaholics, refusing to rest from the rat race of acquiring more. We can't even just have hobbies these days. We're constantly guided to develop a side hustle to make extra cash. And the popularity of the prosperity gospel, which treats God as a tool to make us rich, that testifies to just how pervasive the sin of greed really is. The point is this. We are tempted to be more like the rich fool than we would like to admit. We may assume that as long as we gain it in the right ways, wealth is no threat to our spiritual well-being. We're tempted to hoard it for ourselves with no thought for those around us and no thought of God. We can find ourselves slowly but surely looking to worldly treasures for security, comfort, and joy Rather than God. And we forget that one day we will die. And on that day, our wealth won't save us. That's why Martin Luther wrote, speaking about this passage. Whoever refuses to stick to the word of Christ and to be guided by the invisible treasure, let him go his way. We will not drag anyone in by the hair. But wait and see when it comes time for you to depart. Then summon the treasure you have laid up, the one you have made your reliance. Just see what you have in it then and what help it can give you. Now, this all sounds very negative, doesn't it? And we can't avoid the seriousness of Jesus's words. 
But there's also good news in Luke 12. The good news is that there is a way out of this trap. In the following verses, Jesus teaches his disciples how to avoid the rich fool's fate. Picking back up in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So how do we avoid the rich fool's error? Well, first, we must remember who God is. We talked last week about God as our generous provider in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. We can pray to God with the expectation that he will give us what he knows we need. And one reason we can pray this way is because we see how God provides for the world around us. If God cares about birds, flowers, and grass, parts of his creation that are good but not made in his image the way human beings are, if God provides for that stuff, how much more will he provide and care for us? Now, going down a quick rabbit trail, just humor me for a moment. I find the mention of Solomon in verse 27 to be very interesting. Because in some ways, Solomon was the rich fool of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 17 instructed Israelite kings not to hoard horses, wives, silver, and gold. But Solomon did just that. Solomon's worldly covetousness, especially for pagan women, contributed to his downfall in 1 Kings 11. And in Hebrews 11, in the New Testament, which we often look at as the famous hall of faith that rattles off Old Testament heroes, Solomon is conspicuously absent 
Now, maybe Solomon learned his lesson before it was too late. The book of Ecclesiastes may give us some reason for cautious optimism on that front. But we don't know for sure. One thing is clear, though. At one point in his life, Solomon forgot his God. Much like the rich fool of Luke 12. Like the author of Proverbs 30 warned against. May we, by God's grace, remember who God is and not forget our God. But how else does Jesus teach his disciples to not end up like the rich fool? He also tells us to remember who we are. Jesus reminds his disciples that the nations, which is often biblical slang for those alienated from God, The nations let worldly concerns dictate their security, their comfort, their joy, and their priorities. But we are not part of the nations the way we once were. We are people of God's kingdom. On top of that, we are God's sons and daughters. As we saw last week in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus once again refers to God as our Father multiple times in Luke chapter 12. We've been adopted into God's family by faith, and good fathers care for their children. And we are God's flock. God is our shepherd. And as Psalm 23 tells us, as long as he is with us, we shall not want But maybe the most important lesson to remember about ourselves from today's parable is that we are mortal. Like the rich fool, one day we will die, perhaps suddenly. And when that day comes, may we be rich toward God, even if we're poor in this world. If we have nothing else, may we have knowledge of who God is, And knowledge of who we are by God's grace. And then one final lesson from verses 22 through 34. To avoid the rich fool's fate, we must remember our eternal reward. That man lived for his possessions, his goods, his grain. They occupied the most central place in his heart and mind. He loved them more than anything else, so much so that he would go to great lengths to protect them. And how sad is it when a person's greatest security, comfort, and joy are found in stuff that grows old. Stuff that becomes obsolete. Stuff that can be taken by a common thief. Or stuff that can be destroyed by a tiny moth. Stuff that can be taken away by a sudden stock market crash. Followers of Jesus have something so much better. We have the kingdom of God. And remembering this eternal reward helps us learn to hold on loosely to the things that are worth much less. In Matthew 13, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a buried treasure. Or a priceless pearl. 
when you find something like that, everything else looks cheap. Everything else becomes secondary. May we remember our true reward, the kingdom of God. So greed and covetousness are pernicious sins. Sins that if we allow them to direct our faith away from God can endanger our eternal fate. Our lives do not consist in the abundance of our possessions. They do not consist in the size of our bank accounts. They can't provide us eternal security, comfort, or joy. So when this temptation to sin creeps in, may we remember who we are, remember who God is, and remember our eternal reward that can't be stolen and never deteriorates. But before we close, a passage like this does raise a few practical questions worth considering. Questions like, why does God care so much about my money and my stuff to begin with? As we press on in the Gospel of Luke in the coming weeks and months, you may notice that Luke, compared to Matthew, Mark, and John, devotes a great deal of attention to wealth and possessions. It's a high priority in his gospel. And the truth is that God cares about our stuff because it belongs to him to begin with. He's the creator and author of life. God cares about our stuff because he gives it to us for our good. And as the giver, he retains some say in how we use it and how we view it. And on top of that, because of our sin... Our stuff can easily get in the way of our relationship with God. So God has a vested interest in the subject. Now, we should avoid gross oversimplifications of what the Bible says about money. The Bible does not unquestioningly advocate for one contemporary economic system over another. Likewise, not every follower of Jesus is commanded to sell everything they own And give it to the poor. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But make no mistake. God has a rightful claim. Over how we use and how we view our stuff. And scripture has an awful lot to say about it. Now another question that might come up is. Can't I have treasure on earth and in heaven? Well, yes. But we need to say that with some nuance. First Timothy six can be extremely helpful along these lines. In verses six through ten, the Apostle Paul pulls no punches when it comes to the spiritual dangers of wealth. He says that money can be a root of all kinds of evils and that many can be led astray from their faith over financial concerns. But then in the same chapter, verses 17 through 19, Paul instructs wealthy believers about how they can use their worldly treasure to glorify God and serve the church. So there's a tension there. Nevertheless, as we breathe a sigh of relief and thank God for our worldly treasures while still seeking to lay up heavenly ones, 
we must remember Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 24. That we cannot serve both God and money. Can we be wealthy and follow Jesus? Yes. But can we worship our wealth and worship Jesus at the same time? No. Okay, final question. Cut to the chase. What do we do now? Well, kingdom-minded people use our wealth for kingdom priorities, kingdom purposes. That includes giving generously inside the church and outside of the church. That includes practicing good stewardship over what God gives us, using it wisely. That includes showing restraint to not covet worldly things so much that our ability to do kingdom work is hamstrung. And of course, it means acquiring wealth in a godly manner. The Bible often speaks of God blessing his people with material things. But we manage those material things as tools for his glory. We share those things with those who need it. And while we enjoy those things, we thank God for those things. We do not worship those things. You know, it's easy to pile on the rich fool of Luke chapter 12. It's easy for us to sit here and point out all the mistakes that he made. But I think by far his biggest error was forgetting that one day he would die. And the same is true of us. Our only hope in life and death is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Something that cannot be stored in barns. Something that cannot be deposited in a banking account. So may we look to God for the security, the comfort, and the joy that only he can provide, both in this life and the next. May we remember our greatest treasure, the one who gives us eternal life by his death and resurrection, rather than the treasures that deteriorate. Because we know deep down that money can't buy happiness. I pray that we also know that money can't buy eternal life either. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these parables some of which are familiar to us, some of which are comforting and encouraging and inspiring and almost nostalgic to us. But Lord, thank you also for the parables that shake us up. And that's part of what so many of these parables are meant to do, is to shake us up and to make us think and to convict us, perhaps. Lord, I pray that we would repent of the sin of worshiping anything other than you. That, as we mentioned earlier in the service, we would repent of that terrible idolatry of worshiping wealth and hoarding wealth and putting our trust and our hope and our faith and our joy in anything that isn't you, including wealth. I pray that we would remember our mortality, that we would remember this life is not all there is, 
and that in the big scheme of things, there is no amount of worldly treasure that is worth giving up our souls. Help us repent of that when we commit that sin. And Lord, if we sit here and think that we haven't committed it, I pray that you would remind us that none of us is immune. No matter how well off we think we are or we think we aren't, all of us can fall into this sin. And so, Lord, protect us. By the power of your spirit, with the guidance of your word, we ask that you protect us. And again, thank you for your son, Jesus, who gives us treasure that nothing could be traded for. Because there's nothing in this life that can even begin to match up to the promise and the reward that we have in Christ. That reward was not cheap. It was paid for with Christ's body and blood. So, Lord, I pray that we would treasure that gift, treasure that reward more than anything else we might be tempted to elevate too highly. Again, help us place our hope in you. Help us find our security, our comfort, and our joy in you in this life and the next. Help us use our stuff, our finances, our goods, our possessions in a way that glorifies you. And, Lord, I pray that rather than being a potential obstacle to the kingdom, that we would use these things you give us as tools as we look forward to your kingdom. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.